A Thoughtful Faith Podcast is a production of Mormon Stories and the Open Stories Foundation. All donations to A Thoughtful Faith are tax-deductible and go directly towards keeping the podcast alive and towards building a community of support for Mormons like you. To support the podcast or to join the community, please become a monthly subscriber today at athoughtfulfaith.org. Andre and I recorded the first part of this interview in fall of 2012, and um, because of a lot of different circumstances, um, we didn't have an opportunity to release that part of the episode until this winter. And but in between those times, in between fall of 2012 and now, a lot of things have happened in sort of the gender equality discourse that's going on in Mormonism. Um, also, I think Andrea felt like there was some more things that she could add to uh, her interview to supplement the stuff that we already discussed, and so we are sort of uh, um, sort of recording a sequel <laughs> to the interview we did uh, last fall. And so um, I think there are a, a few things we sort of want to talk about and share with our audience. And um, and so anyway, Andrea, thanks for coming back again. <laughs> You're welcome. Thank you for having me again. So um, before we sort of talk about um, kind of the more recent developments in Mormon feminism, uh, is there anything that you sort of wanted to clarify or supplement to what we discussed in the first interview? Well, we talked a lot about um, way, you know, reasons that the church is wonderful for uh, women, and but also ways that maybe we can improve a little bit. And uh, first of all, I want to say that I don't consider myself an authority or even a, a spokeswoman for Mormon feminists or Mormon feminism in general, because there are so many others that are much better equipped and, and much more involved. I, I myself, you know, a historian of, of Mormon women, as well as somebody who's an observer slash kind of half participant in much of, of what's going on and, and trying to make my own kind of, socio-cultural observations and input and from time to time input. So I hope that that's, I don't know if that helps at all of where I'm coming from, um, but also trying to maintain a balance between how much I engage in these conversations and my faith and my participation in my, in my faith community and, in and in the church. So. Right. And I think uh, <laughs> our listeners have to remember sort of which community, which sort of uh, slice of Mormonism you're participating in, you know, right. um, in, in Rexburg, Idaho. Um, right. There can be a lot of difference between what's going on there and what's oh. going on in Salt Lake and what's going on in Seattle. The what's going community. on Right, and also the, the online community. So, so yeah, I yeah, think that's, that's fair to say. For, right, and I work for the church. I'm a professor at one of the church's universities. I'm an active member of my ward and my stake, and um, but I'm also um, sensitive, and I'm a participant in these online discussions and online communities where these things are very um, personal and very 
um, uh, very raw for some people. And so it's important to, for me to um, know, for me to express what my true feelings are, but also be sensitive to anyone who might be listening of, of whom I have an understanding. Gotcha. So um, that actually a uh, question popped in my head. Odds are, if people are listening to this podcast, they're probably already familiar with some of those online outlets. But would you mind sharing with some of our listeners who are looking for community and support and even activism when it comes to, to gender roles in the church? What are, what, what are some good resources for our listeners to go to? Any groups or forums or... Absolutely. There's, you know, there's a quite a few that are, that are very good. Probably the largest and the most, um, um, the largest umbrella I would say is feminist Mormon housewives, which has its own, um, site, its own website, as well as a Facebook page in which there's a lot of discussion that goes on. There's also, and, and I would say that that's a, that's a site that tries to maintain a balance between those that are feminist, but choose to stay active in the church but want to see change, but it also includes a lot of voices that have left entirely that um, cannot find a way to reconcile their feminism and being in a patriarchal church. They just um, they they can't reconcile those two forces, and so they've they've chosen to to leave entirely. But it's it's meant to be a respectful discussion um, among all different voices. So um, and they have their own hiccups from time to time, and. And different threads of discussion that some people might be comfortable with or less comfortable with. There's also Exponent 2, um, which is a wonderful source. And one of your own interviewees, Nyland McBain, has also um, done some work for Exponent 2 as well. Um, you have LDS Wave, um, and they try to bring together different voices. And also they they deal with some larger women's issues. They often try to bring out... Um, women's issues in the global perspective that we should be aware of and sensitive of and, you know, violence against women and these kinds of things. And, and then of course, um, Nyland's own project on, um, LDS women is the, the Mormon women project, uh, is also, it's, it's a more affirming one. She's not trying to be activist. She's trying to, um, bring all different types of Mormon women's voices together in one place as a as a form of recognizing the individuality and the diversity among Mormon women without necessarily saying we're trying to buck gender stereotypes, but just by virtue of what she's doing, she is bucking gender stereotypes, if that makes sense. So, right. so there's some you know there's some good places that um, that listeners can go to. And, you know, in all honesty, some of the places that I've mentioned, some people might not be comfortable with going to immediately. They might feel like it leans a little bit too much on the um, uh, critical side, um, the side of dissent, the side of um, criticizing church leadership and that kind of thing. And I respect that. I respect that um, people are on all different comfort levels. But for those that are maybe struggling, that don't feel, um, that are struggling with things and they don't feel like they have anyone to turn to or they can't confide in someone, um, you might find, you might find by experimenting a little bit, some different voices that you can turn to, to, to find some hope and, and that kind of thing. And hopefully this podcast as well, that this is a place that people can, can turn to if they want, um, to affirm their faith, 
um, in in various ways. Cool. Yeah, I'm a yeah I'm a big fan of all three of those outlets. Um, I love uh, FMH has a podcast that's been running for several months now. Um, right. I'm a big fan of of Lindsay Hanson Park and Lisa Butterworth. I, I know personally a lot of the people involved in Exponent too, and um, and they're they're awesome women. Yeah. Yeah, and another good project worth mentioning is LDS Wave. I know a lot of the women that are involved in that project, and they do uh, some awesome work there as well. Yeah. And uh, and yeah, I can't say enough enough good things about Nylon's project as well. Cool. So sorry. So I, I think that's I thought that was a good thing to sort of plug there um, mm-hmm. for uh, men and women who are interested in engaging in this discourse. Those are some good uh, good avenues for them to do that. Well, and I like that you mentioned also about um, where somebody lives. And I think that that is um, definitely a factor that plays into um, when people are struggling with some aspect of either Mormon culture or um, history or perhaps gender roles. In this case, as we're talking about, it very much can depend upon where you live. Um, You might live in a ward or stake where leadership tends to be a little bit more progressive or you might live in a warden stake where you have leadership that's definitively a couple of decades behind. Um, and I'm not talking about major issues, or we could be talking about major issues, but even something as simple as what we're talking about, like finding finding better ways of including women in the participation in the church, and especially young women and and those kinds of things. So you know, people have to remember to kind of separate out what they see taking place within their their congregations that might be something they're uncomfortable with, but then you have to step back and say, okay, is this just that person is coming from their own cultural background that perhaps is a little bit more conservative or a lot more conservative? Right, yeah, I think, uh, <laughs> yeah, geography can be a very uh, <laughs> determining factor in terms of absolutely uh, what's going on. Absolutely. Um, so um, what else did you want to sort of discuss before we sort of move into some of the more um, topical issues? You know, I think that the main thing that I had wanted to kind of clarify last time is that, you know, as a historian, I see so much in our church history that gives us a precedent for expanded women's roles. And so when we talk about ways that we can foster this in the church, it's not it's not like we're it's not like we're coming up with something out of the blue that that nobody's ever thought of before. Some of these things are things that we do have historical precedent for. We've you know, we've been there before. Um, and so sometimes it's just a matter of reclaiming our own history. And I know some feminists would think of that in terms of that women used to participate in healing and laying on hands and the things that we talked about in the first the first podcast or are participating in blessings. And now we're even we're even nervous even just to hold the baby during a, a baby blessing or right. And, and and you think where did we get from where we used to actually actively participate in blessing and healing to now we don't dare ask to hold the baby during a blessing. And and those kinds of those kinds of transitions that have happened to us as a as a church and as a culture over time, you have to wonder how we got there. Is it doctrinal or is it cultural? Or these these right. cultural norms that have kind of informed how how we interact um, in a gendered in a gendered framework. Um, I can remember at my own 
baby's blessing, my, um, my second child, I had serious health problems after she was born, very serious health problems, even to the point that I had to be hospitalized again. And, um, and there was fear for my life and this kind of thing. And wow. I don't do go into details about that, but we decided to bless her at home because my health still wasn't good. And I didn't feel up to going to church. And, and, you know, here I was, I was, um, after the blessing, they, you know, you often go through this whole kind of ritual of everyone takes pictures of all the men holding the baby because all the men just got done mm-hmm. blessing this baby. And I'm sitting there on the couch thinking, I just almost died to bring this child into the world. And all the attention is focused on all these men holding my baby. Does that make sense? Yeah. What yeah. I'm trying to express. And so the, so that starkness of it, you know, of if this was a hundred years ago, I, you know, I might've um, been more participatory in the event. And here I've been kind of sidelined to the couch, um, even after everything I went through to bring her into the world. And, and so, you know, things like that, I wonder sometimes, can we, can we be a little bit more um, sensitive? Can we look to ways that, can we look creatively to ways that we can include include women more um, in the day-to-day activities of the church. Um, I, you know, I think of when I walk into sacrament meeting in some wards and maybe not all wards are this way. Again, it depends upon where you live, but I, um, you know, you look at, you walk into sacrament meeting, if it's a fast and testimony meeting and you have the erotic priesthood is blessing and passing the sacrament and, they're handing out the programs at the door and they're maybe that's not the case in all wards or they're the ones holding the microphone and then they go and they collect the fast offerings. And I think, do we have equivalent types of expectations for our young women, ways that we can invite our young women to participate in all of these very active and very, um, kind of upfront ways now that the missionary age has been lowered for young women and they're invited to go at age 19. um, You think we need to work harder, especially because there's going to be more of them. We need to work harder to give our young women the opportunities for active service and participation in the day-to-day functionings of the church and so much of that we just kind of delegate to the young men, even if it's not specifically a priesthood duty or if it's not even doctrinal. And and I know that this varies from ward to ward, and that's another thing that's because it's so arbitrary. In one ward you could get, well, here, young women, why don't you pass out the programs? But in other wards it's we want the young men to do it or whatever. And so right. I just think, you know, we shouldn't necessarily attribute to malice what can most often be attributed to ignorance or tradition or just really a not is just not having awareness but at the same time i think we can be more creative we can look for ways to um, represent women better in the church and 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 talk about women in ways that doesn't sound condescending or patronizing but instead sounds respectful and Right. And so those things, you know, those things I think we can improve upon. We can look for ways. And maybe if there are leaders of the church that are listening to this podcast, that we can that we can think of ways of how are we including young women? How are we how are we talking to the youth of the church in ways that make them equally feel 
um, valued and needed and wanted and not that one is more needed than the other and one is more patronized than the other and um, I don't know if that's making sense kind of what I'm what I'm trying to describe and if you wanted to ask me any follow-up to that or... yeah well uh, the, a couple thoughts I had while you were speaking um, first of all I, I know from my own personal experience and my own perspective has changed is I never really perceived the existence of gender inequality in the church growing up. Um, even though my mom was kind of a, a, a Mormon feminist in her own right, you know, I, I never really sort of picked up on some of the issues, but I think all it takes is just, uh, just bringing that up to your attention. You're like, Oh yeah, that is, that is kind of a problem. You know, Mm -hmm. why, how come there isn't really an equivalent for an Eagle Scout for the, for the young women? I mean, they have the personal progress and and those different programs, but those aren't celebrated to the extent that like an Eagle Scout is where there's a court of honor and, you know, all this fanfare that that goes along with it. And that's not not, to mention the money, not to mention the money and resources that are devoted to young men that, I don't even know what the ratio would be if every do- if one dollar is spent for young women, how much money is the equivalent spent for young men, kind of thing. And I don't know. I don't have statistics on that. I'm sure some of my colleagues would and have more information. But it does beg the question of technically, young men have two programs. They have duty to God and they have scouting, and young right. women have one. And you know, you can't dance around that. There's you know, you have some of these blatant things sometimes that are just pretty obvious unless but unless you actually think about it most people wouldn't maybe even notice or they wouldn't right. stop to think and say oh wait a second you know right well i i am personally aware of a stake where the ammo budget for ap camp was more than the entire girls camp budget hmm. so the budget just for the ammunition <laughs> for the young men for the wow. weekend was more than the entire girls camp for that year. And so, and that's not, I mean, that's just one stake and mm-hmm. you know, that's not necessarily indicative of, of all stakes. I don't want to, you know, make uh, try to make a mountain out of a molehill, but you know, that's just one example where we see sort of the disparity. So that was one thing that came to mind um, was just ma- becoming more aware of these issues, I think gives an opportunity for there to be healthy discourse and, just like uh, I think many of the things that you suggested in our previous interview and now, and also the suggestions that um, Nyla McBain offered are not uh, changes that require any revelation or doctrinal change within the church. Um, they're, they're practical things that, um, mm-hmm. that really just, just make sense and would, uh, would go a long way to, um, to reaching more equality. Um, the other thing that I that you mentioned that I think is really important to recognize is distinguishing between doctrine and culture. Um, you know, I think if we look at even just our own very brief history from the early 1800s to the present, it's it's very obvious to see where that you know that the cultural milieu that Mormonism swims in always has an influence on the the Mormon discourse and 
the way the theology is discussed, and there's no way that you can separate the two. You know, the presence of Pentecostal spiritual experiences were very common in the early church, and they're not anymore. Um, I don't think that has anything to do with the validity of the practice, but it has more to do with that's how spirituality was expressed in that particular location, that particular time. And I think, you know, we shouldn't get hung up on those differences and embrace the really the principle behind it and so a lot of practice for both men and women so even the speaking in tongues is uh, you know you look at the end of that and that's not so much even a gendered thing is that you're right the the context the time period it you know we don't hear anybody standing up in sacrament meeting and breaking out in tongues if and then somebody else standing up to interpret that that doesn't happen at all and so although i'd pay more attention if it did (laughs) <laughs> I think I would too, but um, where you do have the that the healing was something done by both men and women, right? And now we've correlated it to just the priesthood does it, and women don't do it anymore. You do see some gendered aspects of how our um, you know our expressions of faith have changed in gendered ways, and not just the historical falling out of fashion kind of things, right? So I guess my my, the the takeaway that I have from that is just that let's not mistake cultural elements as doctrinal elements, mm-hmm. and uh, and let let's not allow those to get in the way of uh, creating a better better Mormon culture. Well, let's talk about pran- uh, let's talk about pants and praying. <laughs> <laughs> let's do. <laughs> so since we recorded the uh, our our the first part of our interview an organization called All Enlisted, um, and we interviewed a spokesperson for that organization on a thoughtful faith um, in the midst of the whole um, wearing pants to church um, event. Um, they uh, they sponsored that event, and they also have a, uh, an event that they're sponsoring right now called um, Allowing Women to Pray in General Conference. So uh, those are two... Um, sort of cultural circumstances that have arisen that have created quite a bit of controversy and perhaps a, uh, a disproportionate amount of controversy, uh, some might say. So what are, what are your thoughts about, um, about those two things? First of all, in general, for both of them, I, I, I'm, I actually wrote a blog for Juvenile Instructor on the Wear Pants to Church because I was trying to give a little historical context to what happens when women dress in ways that are not considered appropriate for women. And I did some comparisons to Joan of Arc and, you know, when her inquisitors actually, when it came down to it, um, you know, they were really uncomfortable with the fact that she dressed in men's clothing. And so it, it brought on all these, these issues of heresy and, and that she was a witch and, and, and these kinds of things. Um, and so I made some comparisons to that, but you know, when it comes down to it, what you there's a couple things that that came out from the pants to church thing is that on the blog discussions and the Facebook page and all of that that you you got this really really sharp divide that and I think that it's it's displaying itself with the women praying in general conference issue as well is there's this very sharp divide in the church between those that feel like there's nothing wrong at all with how women are treated i've you know the whole i feel totally equal i've never felt oppressed type of narrative and anyone who feels such is being is is wrong 
versus the other extreme, which is that the church is this absolutely unforgivable misogynist organization that has no redemption possible. And right. so you have these two extremes. Either the church is completely, women are completely equal, or the church despises women. Well, you know, because this discussion takes in such wide extremes, my take is that the truth is somewhere in the middle. You know, the church isn't a misogynist organization that hates women, although some would argue that. But on the other side, things aren't exactly perfect. If there's enough women that are willing to take this type of action, that are feel so frustrated, and that they almost feel like that this is, this is the last straw, this is the only way that they can actually finally express themselves. And so that was one thing, and I think that some of that discourse is coming out as well. And one of my um, colleagues um, in a conversation this week, David Pulsifer, he, who's here at BYU-Idaho also, he reminded me, he said, He's kind of an authority on nonviolent action and civil disobedience, and and uh, and he looks at these types of actions and all all different types of facets: political, religious, um, um, various communities, civil rights, etc. And he reminded me, he said, you know, one of the purposes of of nonviolent action and forms of civil disobedience, which I would consider these, is to bring out the extreme negative reactions hmm. is to expose the, the violent um, counter to what they're trying to do, whether it was the civil rights action or whatever. And I think what's interesting about these discussions, both the pants in church and now the women praying in general conference is how many, how much anger there is in reaction to this is how much absolute you know, I mean, in the pants to church thing, you had people posting that threatened violence against the women that would wear pants to church, and they were, and you had, you know, expressions of hatred, and you should leave the church, and we hate you, and, um, and you know, I, I'm just amazed by that. I'm amazed that of all things, you know, we deal with all these controversial issues in the church. We deal with racism and and the whole, you know, what doctrinal folklores we have on blacks in the priesthood and we deal with um whatever we deal with um you know little sticky spots in our historical past and and some of these things get extreme reactions from time to time but it seems like nothing gets quite the extreme reaction <laughs> as right. when you start to talk about the roles of women or and when once you wear you pants talk, yeah and once you start to talk <laughs> about the roles of women wow that brings the that just brings up these these below the surface feelings of of just anger and and fear fear is what I see and and that's what I think is we're starting to see if if anything the the pants to church and the women praying in general conference in themselves are exposing that all of the real under the surface feeling is now bubbling up on both sides and that you have good members of the church that are they're they're displaying they're putting on to display that maybe something isn't right if you have such extreme responses on both sides does that kind of make sense what i'm trying to say yeah so your colleague uh, professor pulsifer so is making the case that that that's sort of normal and yes. um, and and good 
Is, is that basically? It, it is good. Um, you know, when you, well, first of all, let me back up and clarify is that a lot of people, their problem is, is that this kind of political action shouldn't be taken, that protest itself, that that's not the way the church is set up. We're not a democratic organization and we're not a democratic society. We are a theocracy. Um, and so, you know, we do, one of our pillars is to sustain our, our leadership and any sort of protest is going to smack of um, not sustaining our leadership, of trying to challenge the brethren, of, of steadying the ark. Um, so you right. do have, and, and so on the one hand, you, you think, well, any kind of protest like this, if you want to call it a protest, I know those that are the all enlisted ones do not want it called a protest. And I'm very sensitive to that. Um, and I'm not going to choose to call it a protest. I would choose to call it a um, just um, an expression. I think is the best. I think is the best word to call it. And this form of expression, a lot of people, um, especially very conservative members of the church, are uncomfortable with, because that's quote unquote not how we do things. Well, then those in the all enlisted movement will remind them that oftentimes change has happened in the church because people have had a question because because of kind of a grassroots type of movement, whether you're talking about the organization of the primary happening because one sister in Farmington, Utah, was quite upset with how the children were behaving in church. And so it started as a grassroots grassroots movement, or even going back to Joseph had questions, and so he, you know, this kind of thing. And so there's this dialogue going back and forth about what is appropriate to bring change in the church, we're so used to the context of the narrative we get about how the ban on blacks in the priesthood was lifted, that this was done because the general authorities went in prayer and they received their answer in the temple and that there was an overwhelming feeling. You know, you've heard many of them tell the story. And that's how change happens, that it's always done because somebody in leadership is the one who went to the Lord and then they received an answer and then they could pass that down to the church. And so what... These, you know, I think that social media has changed that dynamic to a certain extent because now it's possible to get a lot more attention to what people are feeling. And then you can create a Facebook page and put a stamp on it, and all of a sudden you have a movement because you created a Facebook page about it. Right. And, and then you start to get the discussion is going on in a very public forum that's naturally going to bring out these extreme reactions. I personally was very, I was very disheartened by a lot of the extreme reactions and the, you know, the threats of, well, why don't you just leave the church and what, you know, that kind of thing really bothers me because I, I think I mentioned in our, our first half of this podcast is that I want the church to be a place for everyone. I want us, you know, it shouldn't just be for everyone who thinks exactly alike, but that even those of us that might be struggling with gender roles, I, you know, we have to find a way that we can, that we can fit and, and, and be a comfortable place where we can all come unto Christ together. Well, I think as you pointed out, I think this type of organization and, and venues for sort of the loyal opposition that we're talking about is sort of unprecedented. Um, you know, and, but what what certainly is precedented is, as you already pointed out, is that sometimes sometimes uh, change trickles up instead of trickles down, you know, and that that goes with um, things like changes to the garments, uh, changes to our temple endowment, 
Uh, yeah. and, and even the revelation on on the blacks, all of that stuff, you can see the seeds of it from uh, activism from regular members of the church. And so even though on the, I think, <laughs> the way it's sort of presented as sort of this top-down revelatory uh, manner that we're that, that we're given of how the church works. It's it's actually quite the opposite, and um, and I think while while this may be somewhat experimental in terms of the movements that we're talking about right now, it certainly isn't unprecedented for us to to sort of petition the brethren and petition the church for change that we want. Yeah, and I um, I I do see that there sometimes change happens because there's a combination of maybe top-down sensitivity to what's happening but also things going on on the bottom levels that are percolating up and um as you know as to some of the specific things i you know for me the women praying in general conference thing i think the movement they've come up with some very good logical reasons um for it and it seems like an interesting thing to ask for um historically women didn't pray in general conference so i I always try to go back to the history i always try to go back and find to see if there's a precedent for something well isn't there precedent in the fact that women used to not pray in church at all right before the 70s but women did pray in their own meetings and they also healed and gave blessings together and so there was there was a precedent for kind of a separated gendered aspect of women praying similar to, you know, women praying relief society today or pray in their relief society meetings. Um, right. But I think that what this movement is about is partly what we're all feeling is that since the, you know, since the Mormon, since we've been on the kind of the front page of what's going on um, with the Mitt Romney and the, the whole presidential campaign. And there's so much of about the church and, and all these things are on them. You know, they're laid out on the table, they're under the microscope. And, and I think that this is one of those things is that, you know, they they're taking the statements by president Kimball that when they undid the ban of women praying in sacrament meeting, that basically said women can pray in any meeting. And so they now just want to take that to the level of, well, if women can pray in any meeting, let's have them pray in the most important meeting that we have. I was talking to somebody about this today, and what it came down to is that um, every congregation and every region of the church is at a different place where gender is concerned, like what I mentioned at the beginning, that some wards and stakes are still very traditional when it comes to how they talk about women, how they talk about the roles of men and women. And some are doing a little bit more or some individuals are, are trying to push that a little bit. And so perhaps, you know, there's this feeling sometimes of do, does the leadership really recognize or are they sensitive to the fact that some women don't feel completely valued in the church? Right. And if they don't, maybe there is sensitivity to it, but then you often get this, you know, these statements against feminists and how bad feminists are and this kind of thing. And so you wonder, is everything that any any woman that says, I'm struggling with something regarding gender in the church, is it immediately written off as, oh, that's just the feminist complaining again? Or is somebody actually listening? Right. 
And that's the question. Is somebody actually listening? So when I begin to wonder, is somebody actually listening? Then I look to these, you know, the pants and the general conference thing. And I think maybe, maybe people think they need to do this because they worry that no one is listening. Right. And this is their way of kind of taking somebody by the shirt collar and saying, listen to me, listen to me. No, but you're not listening. And maybe this is this is what they're. Do you see what I'm saying? Yeah, you know, uh, uh, John Delin. We recently interviewed him for a thoughtful faith, and he uh, recounted a, um, a, a an analogy that Margaret Toscano, I guess, has used or, or uses sometimes, where it's like a kid who's in the back seat of the car is feeling really hot. And needs like the air conditioning turned on or the window rolled down. Right. And so at first they say, Mom, Dad, can you can you roll the window down? It's really hot. But the radio's on and they're talking and so they don't hear her. So they she speaks a little louder. Mom, Dad, can you turn the air conditioning on? And they're still not hearing it. So finally she screams, <laughs> you know. And And sometimes the parents will react negatively to that. Where it's like, why are you yelling? You can, you know what I mean. But mm-hmm. anyway, that I feel. Well, I would compare it to this. I would change that. I would change that analogy a little bit, and I would make it this: Mom, Dad, I'm really hot back here. Could you turn the heat down? And they say, Well, we're not up here. We're we're just fine. We're nice and warm up here. So how could you possibly feel hot? Right. <laughs> and that, that's how I would change it up again. That's the that's the, the narrative that I hear sometimes, and that's my most frustrating one. Is well, I don't feel that way. I've never felt oppressed, so you shouldn't either. Right. Instead of oh, you feel you don't feel valued. Well, how come you don't? Please explain it to me. Um, and so then when you have all enlisted or some of these other groups try to outline, maybe with a list or maybe with a you know kind of a. a a checklist of here are some things that are cultural or that don't make us feel completely valued. And we would like to see some of those things addressed and then maybe nothing gets addressed. Right. Then you have to wonder, is somebody listening or are they, are they afraid? Then you have all this, this uh, kind of response to the, to the, um, the uh, praying in general conference thing that says, well, if now they can't let a woman pray in general conference because it will look like they're capitulating, that they're actually capitulating to a movement. Right. And so there's an interesting response as well is, well, if they actually go through with it, then that means they're actually listening to us so that it shows that it shows that change doesn't just the change doesn't just come from above that it that they are being sensitive to does that make sense kind of what i'm yeah. trying to say no i've heard that several times and i think i've heard in a story and it may be apocryphal of at one point you know the brethren were really close to um sort of changing their or making a policy change about blacks in the priesthood and that somehow a rumor had leaked out that that they were going to do it and so once that rumor got out, they they pushed it back because they didn't want they didn't want to seem as if they were sort of responding to a cultural right. demand. Right. And so right. I don't know if that story is true or not. But It'd be um, possible, but um, yeah, we'd have to look into the history of that, of which much has been written on. So 
Um, so yeah, as far as the the movements of the church, I think that what we're feeling is that we're on a kind of a wave. I think that, and maybe this was emboldened a little bit when they lowered the missionary age, because this was, to be honest, the lowering of the missionary age for women was something that Mormon feminists, um, including myself, I've wanted that for a long, long, long time. And so the fact that they did it, I think that there was this feeling of, oh, maybe they're listening. Right. Or maybe, wow, if they can change that, then maybe other things can change. And so it's it's possible that the missionary change thing has kind of created a – it's a catalyst perhaps of – wow, this has all been kind of percolating under the surface for a while, and now maybe we can move forward. Yeah. Of all things, I mean, of all things to kind of change the dynamic, I never, you know, six months ago, I, I, wouldn't, have, I wouldn't have foreseen that or some of the things that are, that are happening on top of that, the, you know, the pants and the... Right, and, um, and it is interesting, you know, I mean, not to not to undervalue the the significance of the of the age change, but ultimately that's a that's a policy shift, right? And yeah. so it's it's a very minor thing, but so is the pants, and so is women praying in general conference. And mm-hmm. I think people outside of Mormonism are just like scratching their head, like, "Wait, you guys are fighting about expect- wearing pants?" Yeah, you know. And so it is interesting how these really subtle changes and these really subtle issues have just such a uh, almost a dis disproportionate reaction from within Mormon culture. You're right. Right. And, and it's kind of what I um, brought up a little bit earlier is that it's really kind of exposing the divide. Right. When you see people's responses, they tend to be on one side or the other, either, you know, quit complaining and get out of the church. You, you hateful, whatever, or, I don't feel that way. I, I can't imagine that anyone would feel that way. I, I feel, you know, you have these interesting, um, interesting kind of responses. Come the fount of every blessing to my heart to sing the grace. Thank you for joining us today on A Thoughtful Faith. To discuss this podcast, check us out at athoughtfulfaith.org. The music from this podcast was generously donated by Lisa Frazier. Hear more from her at lisafrazier.com. Oh, to grace, how great a debtor.